Expedition 44 here with Matt and Ryan. We are on a series in 1st Peter and this is going to be our fifth film on 1st Peter with an introduction and this would be the fourth part of really diving into it. We are on 1st Peter 3, 8 to 4, 11. We're going to start out with the first four verses. I'll read them. To sum up, all of you have been harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirits, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must Speak peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Alright, so Peter begins here really with giving a summary of the attitude that believers should have. And this is on the tail of what we talked about last week. So the three structures that he instructs of how believers should live under... Uh, empire rulers, uh, slavery masters, uh, in the patriarchal household systems under pagan husbands if you're a believing wife. And this model, um, they're supposed to model the way of the suffering servant. So it's all about Christiformity. That's been our theme through the entire book here. And so one could say that this is a continuation of the exhortation to believing husbands and believing wives of how they should live in unity together and in mutuality. Um, but he's talking also about how to how to live as as a church together in community, uh, Jesus community. Yeah. yeah. So. so he kind of goes with this idea of the Sermon on the Mount. He kind of ends up with ethics that very much echo the message that we get through Jesus. Yeah, especially we get um, harmony here, but also you get um, the whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type. Um, motif of that that's not the way that Christians don't return evil for evil they don't uh, but instead they turn they they give blessing instead of evil back to those who are persecuting them is the whole thing so it says to live in harmony and harmony isn't just uniformity or 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 that it's about getting along yeah even though you might not agree with somebody right exactly that's so again he uses an interesting uh, word here um, Tapionophrome, uh, which is interesting Greek word, um, and it's used uh, for the word humble. Yeah. And it's a derogatory term yeah. to the pagans, but not, it's used as actually a virtue in the Christian culture. Yep. You kind of have this eye for an eye, but it was kind of a take of the attitude of the servant. So mm-hmm. when you when you kind of take this derogative, you know, feeling towards mm-hmm. the pagan culture, it kind of goes back to what he said earlier about kind of taking a role of being humble or being mm-hmm. in humility about everybody that's there. Yeah, and it says the purpose here is to inherit a blessing. So he gets into that in, in verse uh, 9, and th- which basically contrasts or is in parallel with uh, verse 7, um, where it says if the husbands don't take on the attitude of the suffering servant, and especially in the mutuality and the, the way that yeah. they live with their wives who are the the weaker social, the part of the weaker social structure, bringing them up, the last shall be first, the first shall be last, that their prayers won't be heard. But here he's saying that you need to take on this attitude of sympathy, of unity, of harmony, of kindheartedness, of humbleness, um, not returning insult for insult, this whole upside down way of life. And when you do that, you'll inherit the blessing and the blessing is in parallel with not having your prayers heard. So the blessing is having your prayers heard. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a contronym going on there. This is all laced in very Hebraic thought. And mm-hmm. we've said this throughout First Peter that, you know, he's speaking to some that understand this thought, but he's kind of going through and explaining it a little bit because there's obviously some people that don't get it. And so this is one of those Hebrew contronym things that, you know, you might be blessed in your, you know, curses and cursed in your blessings. And it goes back and forth in the way of mm-hmm. thinking. But the idea here is really that you're, you're, prayers and your sacrificial living is offered up to in a way that is going to result in blessings whether you see them or whether mm-hmm. they're you know results of your friends getting them or whatever yeah. 
communally, it's still being blessed. Yeah, and the big thing here is Peter counts this blessing connected to their behavior. Yeah. And that's the big thing. It's Ethics not, and grace. Yeah. yeah, it's not connected to just belief or momentary salvation, right. but it's the way that they live out the journey yeah. is how the blessings come. When you're living this out, the blessing is your prayers being heard, where it's in contrast with the husbands who don't live that way with their lives and uh, mimic the pagans. Yeah. That, that their prayers won't be heard. <laughs> so now we get to a place where there's this kind of like quote. And again, uh -huh. like I'm always challenging people when they get to a quote like this to go, where does this yeah. come from? Look where did up. you find this? Look it up. And unfortunately, in the translations that we have, this is very difficult to find these. Mm -hmm. I say this over and over that in most Bibles, you almost can't find them. And most of them are going to be Septuagint quotes. And mm -hmm. so this one is kind of a reference to Psalm 34, but even when you read it in the Septuagint, it's not necessarily word for word, even though it appears to look that way. Yeah, and so what Peter seems to be doing here is he's taking what seems like Psalm 34. Um, it's pretty close to it. In you got to remember, everything's oral here. And uh -huh. so the way that things are passed on over and over is oral. And sometimes you're going to challenge that maybe the quotes are actually better interpretations than what we have for the text itself. Yeah. And so he's kind of setting up maybe Psalm 34 as a, a connected to the Sermon on the Mount. It's, yeah. uh, it's not, uh, it's connecting Old and New Testament is what, what his big point is here. But he does a few things here in verses like 10 through 12 when he's dealing with Psalm yeah. 34, which evangelicals would throw stones at Peter for doing this. <laughs> exactly. so it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. So first he omits parts of it. The parts that deal with destructions of evildoers. I laugh about this all the time because today if I quoted a verse and just decided to leave part of it out, again, like you said, you get stoned for that. <laughs> Why don't you just leave this out? Yet yeah. He omits the destruction of evildoers. Is Peter a pacifist here? Maybe. Maybe he's become that. He didn't seem so much in the Gospels, nope. but it seems a little more, definitely more like this here in First Peter. And this could be, it's always it's always interesting to see the writing and perhaps how a author's mindset or theology could change over the years. And so, as Matt said, from the beginning of Gospels, we're going to see somebody who wants to go to war and cut ears off and everything mm -hmm. else, and here yeah. you get a very yep. different look at that. Yeah, so the second thing is he smooths out a bunch of the awkward language in Greek. <laughs> Did he become really good in Greek in 30 years? Maybe not. Maybe, 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 maybe not. not. Yeah. And now the original context here of the psalm is about um, living a long life yeah. here on earth. But here, it seems like that he changes that to just life, which pertains to resurrection, being yeah. resurrected, or eternal life, rather than just um, earthly blessings in the now, and that really would probably connect to Peter's audience who's facing persecutions. Yeah. So, rather than um, extending long life yeah. on this side of the new creation, He's talking more about inheriting life in the new creation. So I've been trying to point out all the different ways in 1 Peter that we're seeing a Hebraic mindset. And this is one of them. So this isn't Peter needing to be stoned in the modern church. This mm -hmm. is, in Hebrew, how people think of things. As they aren't these rote specifics, it's more of a mosaic is the mm -hmm. term I use a lot of times. I mean, that's what the law was. It was a whole bunch of painting of pictures and people would say, well, you could never keep it but you could keep the big picture. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going on here is Peter's kind of painting the big picture. He's almost like rephrasing this based on the concept of the Sermon on the Mount of kind of taking it and putting it into an application for the culture and the people that he's got here 30 years later or whatever. Yeah, and when you look at the original Psalm in the Septuagint of Psalm 34, it has a bunch of questions, which Peter then in here, when he quotes it, makes into statements. Yeah, and so he's actually saying that oh, well, these questions should be interpreted this way yeah. rather than just quoting it word for word. So, like we said, Peter seems in our Western mindset to be playing fast and loose with the Old Testament, yeah. but actually, he's doing Jewish exegesis. Exactly. So yeah. this yeah. is the way that they approach Scripture: is they applied that to now, and he's looking at it all through a lens of Jesus. And that's how Jesus actually said to interpret scripture on the Emmaus way. <laughs> and and, so, Jesus, so Peter's doing that. And again, the way that this is written is not so much of a letter, but, you know, a weird sermon, exhortation, mm -hmm. something else. It's beautifully crafted to not be too in your face, yet mm -hmm. make a very strong point, which in this case is 
stop doing evil and live in peace. Yeah. Maybe. So when we look at this quotation, like he breaks it into like kind of three points. Believers should cease speaking evil and doing deceit. The second part is they should turn from evil and do acts of peace, which echoes basically yep. the Sermon on the Mount and Romans 12. And then the last part is that God's eyes are on the people that do these good things, yeah. and but is against the evildoers, meaning in the context he's not hearing their prayers. Yeah. And when it says that the guys, God's eyes are set on these people, it's, it, we kind of get this today that, you know, we're always praying that we might see things from the eyes of God, but the Hebraic mindset is you never really knew what the eyes of God were. So you're looking for, you know, a little confirmation in your walk of where are these, these things at. And what, what this is, this is a little bit of circular reasoning saying that as you do these things, a sign of that will be the peace and unity that comes with it. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's continue on. We're going to do 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. I can read that. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will to do so that you suffer for doing what is right than doing what is wrong. All right, so we get um, right off in verse 13 this word zealous, which... um, Really, what Peter's audience is going here is that, um, so if we back up, I guess, a little bit and say Peter doesn't begin telling the audience that they're invincible. Yeah. <laughs> right. Kind of that Joshua thing that you talk yeah. about is tell Joshua that no one can touch you. Right. Peter's not telling his audience that. So, <laughs> exactly. So, um, which connects to how he uses the word zealous. Um, so it may echo Matthew ten twenty eight. Don't fear the one who can kill your body, but fear the one who can destroy your body and soul in Gehenna. Yeah. Um, so zealous, zealotoi, um, has some interesting connotations connected with those who wanted to rise up against Rome. Because it's the same word that would have brought that to the mind of these Jews. And I'll again take this back to the dating. This is why the dating is important, is we're, we're within five four, three years of this huge revolt going on. And so Mm -hmm. this word is really important that comes in here, yet most people kind of are going to put this in the world's perspective. We think of Barabbas, who I don't know if you guys know the background of Barabbas, but he was... A zealot. A zealot, yeah. He, they, they released him because he was the one that was fighting against Rome. and They wanted the patriot instead of the, uh, <laughs> the suffering servant. And so that's the idea that this, this word had the connotation, yet what Paul is doing here, what, I'm sorry, what Peter is doing is he's taking this and he's flipping it so that the word not only takes the worldly meaning, but he's saying now apply gentleness, good behavior, Mm -hmm. suffering through this in order to be more Christ-like. Yeah, so Peter flips it on the upside down, gentleness, behavior, suffering, all of that. And so then he moves on to suffering for righteousness connected to this. What zealousness actually is, is suffering for righteousness and not having in basically a a revolt against uh, these governors or whatever. So in 314, he uses suffering, but it's in the... um, it's in a weird verb form. <laughs> it's in an optative verb yep. form, which is extremely rare. You yep. can probably count the times on two hands in the whole New Testament that you see this. And so when it's connected here um, with what's going on, it's not saying that maybe the audience is experiences suffering, but it could be that a part of the audience might be, or that suffering could be coming to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's also, you know, another way to interpret this is literally it's the audience is suffering. Try mm-hmm. to figure that one out. The audience is suffering. And this is, again, can go back to the dating of would they be suffering if it was written in 60 or 62 or something like that? Par- Maybe. Possibly. Maybe. And so Peter is saying that they're suffering, but they're blessed in this. And it's the same word that we see in the Beatitudes too. So there's a there's a definitive connection going on to think in the mind of Christ here. Yeah, so in the Beatitudes, makarios um, is the word blessed. And if you look at that word in classical Greek, if you look at through the, the lens of like maybe the Stoics or the philosophers in that, that area, it would have communicated the life of the gods, the divine yeah. life, 
Which, but Peter's communicating the upside down kingdom, the way yeah. of suffering is actually blessing, not the way of the way that the philosophers would say, which would be this disembodied existence would be like the, the life of the gods is the true blessing. Now we don't see this very often in the scripture because in Hebrew we get word plays all through the mm -hmm. Old Testament. In fact, I would even argue that you, you can't get through a paragraph in the Old Testament without getting a Hebraic word play. You have to, you know, kind of read the Hebrew into it and then step back and say, what do these words connect and what was really going on here? In Greek, we don't get that a lot yet. This is what Peter's doing here. He's using these words that have other significance, and in this case, they would have they would have all wanted to aspire to be a god, so to speak. Yet, that's not the kind of babble god mm -hmm. thinking that God wants. Yet, yep. we're going to eventually be as gods with him. So there's a huge Greek wordplay going on here, but he's turning it to the backward Sermon on the Mount and thinking. Yeah, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Peter's words are. Right here, echoes of Jesus's, you are blessed when you are persecuted for righteousness or yeah. justice's sake. And that's basically what he's echoing here from the yeah. Sermon on the Mount. So yeah. then we get into uh, Peter saying that through this, you should be prepared to give an account. Yeah. Um, so, But he starts it out with saying, set Jesus apart in your hearts. And this might be the only part, place in the entire Bible where it says that you need to kind of accept Jesus in your heart or yeah. put Jesus in your yeah. heart, which is a popular Christian idiom for being saved. But is that really what Peter means? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely is. I, I wrote an article about this, of the idea of being born again or being saved. Mm -hmm. When you look in the New Testament, you can... Really, if you're just looking at those words, you can find them on less than five places. And this is one of them. And mm -hmm. so I would interpret this, even though I'm not a momentary salvation guy, I'm a journey guy. Peter's been speaking to the journey here. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, he goes back to more of a momentary yeah, thought. So line in the sand. that's the word, the line in the sand. But again, is that necessarily what he means? The whole thing's been about the journey up until this yeah. point. So verse 14 quotes Isaiah Eight, uh, 12 to 13 and in the context there it's talking about setting aside Yahweh as holy like bearing his name and here it, instead of Yahweh they put Jesus in the picture as yeah. is, is who you're doing it so they're saying Christ is holy yep. in your heart so they're connecting the divinity of Christ here yep. with this quotation and setting apart Jesus in your heart is about conforming your your life to his life, uh, which connects back to evangelism by behavior in the whole previous section that we did in the last video. So, And I took a few minutes to talk about the girding up your loins. And this mm -hmm. is that kind of language of holiness. And, you know, we often think of, you know, girding up your loins in terms of running with the mm -hmm. prodigal son of the father running out to establish mm -hmm. him. And part of that is, but part of it is to have a strong back. And mm -hmm. so a, a lot of times in Hebraic thinking, this is an idea that, you know, we, we need to gear up. And mm -hmm. so there's that mindset coming on into this, which is interesting because you think of gearing up for war, of putting, mm -hmm. when we lift weights, we put the belt on and lift weights. Yet the the backward thinking is gearing up for gentleness, reverence, and respect. Mm -hmm. Totally opposite of what you would think in the culture. Yeah, so he, he goes backwards again. And it, instead of girding up for physical action or maybe violence, he's saying gird up your mind so that you can answer those who come against you with yeah. gentleness and reverence. So he's, he's saying here is that... Um, I think Christians actually forget the second part, the reverence and gentleness thing. They, you see fights all over yeah. on the internet and Facebook and that of yeah. people trying to defend their faith, but they don't do it with gentleness. They don't do it with reverence for God. They don't realize that when they speak these words that they're actually bearing God's name and someone and God's reputation is on their shoulders. I think every day I read a Facebook post in the name of Jesus that just makes Jesus look horrible. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of, if he were, if Peter was here today, he would probably be speaking to that social media mindset mm -hmm. of saying like, in, in, you're, tr you're trying to do this, but in the way you're, mm -hmm. you're totally accomplishing the opposite of what Jesus is asking us to do. And also in this being prepared to do that is being prepared to do that in a way that bring God, brings God honor and to answer him correctly. So he's also saying, gird up the lines of your mind by having good theology, yeah. by correctly studying, by being able to give an uh, answer that reflects what God's word says truthfully, but also in a way that can win over those um, 
and not give Jesus a bad reputation. Yeah. So Now, earlier in our film series, we talked about household codes. And mm-hmm. household codes are a little bit of a, the Greco-Roman honor-shame world that we live in. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, what, what we had here is in, in the household, there was uh, an ethos which flowed from the head of the family. Yep. You could say in these household codes, they would... They, the ethics of the empire would be displayed through the head of the house, and then yep. the whole household would, and this is why it was important for the whole household to worship certain gods. Yep. Um, and so what we have here is that when Christians are slandered because of their behavior, actually in the household of God, they're given honor, even yep. though in the earthly point of view, there may be un- unbelie- or unbelieving husbands with believing wives who aren't worshiping the the gods of the pagan husbands, but it's actually by them doing that and suffering, it's actually honor because they're living up to the household of God. There's also a connection here, though, to where where he's kind of the underlying theme is that your heart and your mindset has to be right in suffering. It doesn't mm-hmm. do any good just to go suffer for suffering's sake. That if you're if you're in a place of suffering and you're doing this to ex- experience Jesus and to you know, maybe there's some blessing connection on there. We always kind of talk about, you know, these ideas of, of reasoning why you're doing yeah, things. Yeah. But, but this is what he's saying is that, that in your suffering, it's important to maintain the right mindset, the right heart set, because if you don't, it's kind of all lost. Yeah, the suffering servants didn't suffer just for suffering's sake, but yeah. he suffered for a purpose. So Jesus putting himself forth as a sacrifice was because of the way he lived his life and it, it resulted in suffering yeah. but you know at, if as these people are putting forth their life it might result in suffering but you're not supposed to go look you shouldn't put on a martyr complex yeah. basically is what peter's saying that suffer for doing what is good don't go looking for suffering so he starts with that and then the next section the next uh, four verses he's going to kind of continue building this kind of account of Jesus suffering being victory and he's going to get into how baptism connects that. So let me read this. Yep. It's 1 Peter 3:18 through 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers and been subjected to them. This is a lot. Yeah, so this is probably up there with one of the maybe weirdest uh, yeah. sections of scripture. And so we're yeah. going to show you how it con- connects to everything we've just been talking about. Yeah. So Peter gives another example here of Jesus, uh, his suffering being victory and how baptism connects that and connects us yep. to his victory. So the first thing we need to tackle is basically died for sins. Yeah. And this is, even though it's a weird passage... PSA people will suffering on servant, suffering yep. servant, yep. and say, "Oh, look, it's uh, it's that." So Peter, um, basically, we we did a whole series on atonement, for, and so yeah. and for we sin did for us, yeah, yeah. So we did a whole episode on that, and just a recap of that is the Greek word um, for four has four words. Yep. Uh, <laughs> first one is anti, which is only used really in one place, and it's the eye for an eye substitution type type thing but and not but, used for the cross yeah never yeah. used for the cross um so peri and dia are the other ones and that means because of and it's usually looking at an action or someone being acted upon so it's yeah. really sinners acting upon jesus rather than god acting right. upon jesus and all of the instances of that the most um prevalent one is hooper which is for a benefit giving a gift yeah. it's about healing and never about balancing a ledger yeah so when we look at this verse that uses parry it's because of it's connected to the context of persecution here um of the pagans persecuting the yep. christians it's the same context with jesus it's not god persecuting or right. pouring out wrath on jesus right it's evil people persecuting our lord and savior as brian zahn says we violently send our sins into jesus on the cross but his response was father forgive them yeah 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we continue asking the question, who actually killed Jesus? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I killed think Jesus Axe, and... Axe answers that pretty well. And you're going to have problems <laughs> if you end up with God killed Jesus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so the purpose of the death here is to bring us to God, not to satisfy wrath or justice. Yeah. And prosago means to secure access. And that's really used in Exodus 29.10, yeah. Leviticus 1-2. It's the same word as the burnt offering, which was really just the gift saying, hey, God, I want to spend time with you. It wasn't, yeah. it didn't atone for sins or anything like that. So we've got a whole video just on that yeah. you can go watch. But the important thing, the connection here is one of the reasons why we don't take a PSA view on this. In fact, a, a hefty reason is because if you continue following our view of 1 Peter, a PSA interpretation makes absolutely no sense in this yep. analogy. It doesn't work at all. Yeah, because it connects, if we did that, it would connect God in combination with the pagans here in the text in the analogy, yeah. where the pagans were the ones who are persecuting the church, the body of Christ. Right. We don't see God persecuting Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. in the analogy here, a PSA point of view does not make any sense. Nope. So we just wanted to put that out. The next thing we need to deal with in the text is um, Jesus being put to get death but made alive in spirit or in yep. the spirit. Um, so it's a debate on what this means if it happened before the resurrection or after the resurrection. Yeah. So um, so when you, whenever you talk about being made alive in the spirit, this kind of goes back to an Old, Old Testament reference of when was the spirit of God active. And uh -huh. so there's going to be a lot of scholars that believe that at some point, despite trying to rebuild a second temple and all this, that God's spirit just left Israel and the temple altogether. And there's some mm -hmm. ramifications here in the Hebraic sense when you consider that here as well. Yeah, so being alive in the spirit um, can connect back to the animating breath of God, um, which is, brings life. And so... The sense of being alive, that word there that's used in, in the Greek, um, is used in the New Testament elsewhere to talk of resurrection. We have yep. John 5.21, Romans 4.17, Romans 8.11, 1 Corinthians 15.22, Colossians 2.13, all use that word. So when we look at this, especially in the passive voice, it points to God raising Jesus from yeah. the dead when this proclamation is happening. Um, you can make a case. I don't think it's as strong that this happened when Jesus was in the grave. It yeah. kind of points more to his resurrection yeah. as the proclamation yeah. um, here, So, which we'll get into. And this also. is just one of those things where we don't actually know everything. That no, we don't have all the cards. Grave. And so whether you <laughs> put it in the grave or you put it afterwards, that, that's a tough one. Yeah, so Romans 10, uh, next we got to look at proclamations to spirits and this is where it gets good. This yeah. is where it gets weird <laughs> and where it gets good. So yeah, Romans 10, 7 and Ephesians 4, 28 are often cross-referenced here um, with Jesus' descent into death, but they don't actually talk about Jesus going and preaching to anybody in either of these contexts. So this is where you're, you're kind of, we usually actually kind of take more of the orthodox mm -hmm. mindset that Jesus, at, at the time of his three days in the grave, went back and preached to somebody, but... It might not be the spirits. <laughs> it might not be the spirits. So we don't, again, Matt just said we don't have all the cards. We don't really know what's mm -hmm. going on, but this is what I call a clue passage. When mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out what happens, luckily we can read the whole lens of the Bible and put it together, you know, where they didn't necessarily have that at the time that different things were happening and being writing. I mean, when Jesus raised from the dead, obviously nobody in that culture at that time had any idea what was <laughs> yeah. going on. Yeah, so when we look at kind of the cross-reference of Ephesians 4, it talks about Jesus descending to the earth, not descending into the grave. And when we talk about Romans 10, it does talk about Jesus going to the realm of the dead, but it doesn't talk about what he did there. So yeah. we don't really have we all just the cards. Don't know, and no. the, the Greek grammar also links to where it says, in which also in the text, or which connects to made alive, which connects to made a proclamation. All those three phrases there connect in the Greek text. It's saying that the resurrection itself was the proclamation of victory over the powers. And so this is how he connects it so to baptism. This is a timeout squirrel moment yep. because we could talk about this for days, different ways. Uh -huh. But I'm, I'm just going to, if you're watching these films, uh, I think Heiser uses the term, you probably cross the Rubicon. You're okay with mm -hmm. listening or thinking about different things that happened. And so where this comes into play here is we like to think of 
journey in discipleship. And my version of discipleship is actually very deep. I don't think that everybody was a disciple, that that was a very, you know, called out place. And later when he's saying some of you are going to rule angels, there's an idea that some somewhere in the heavenlies that some people are going to be, you know, rank, jewels, something, rolling over others. Who are the others? Who yeah. are the others? This gets a little bit like complicated because we don't have that. And so I always poo-poo momentary salvation, but there is a place in the scripture for it. And we kind of see that Christ at the cross when he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I'll make that connection because that's kind of what we're talking about mm -hmm. here. Is he bringing this person to those that still have another chance? Who in the Old Testament had another chance? Did mm -hmm. everybody have another chance? And this is where you got to go to our series on yeah. hell and figure out the connection and what you believe in this yeah. area. Yeah, so let's look at next, who are these spirits in prison? <laughs> so that's the next thing. So uh, when, we, when we look at that word prison in, in Greek, it doesn't refer to Sheol or Hades anywhere else in Scripture. It's a place of incarceration, usually for demons or fallen spiritual beings, and Humans are never said to be in this prison anywhere in the Bible. And when you get to Revelation, there's a stiff connotation that the lake of fire was created for these rebellious spiritual mm -hmm. beings that have fallen. And, it w and you get the idea that that wasn't the plan for people. Mm -hmm. Yet, a few verses later, it kind of you know insinuates, mm -hmm. but maybe we'll throw some people in there too. <laughs> yeah. So when we, it brings up the spirits who disobeyed, it can't be humans because humans are neither spirits. Yep. And they're not in the spirit in the days of the Noah, right. if it's talking about... Genesis 6, that, yeah, four, so, yeah, so they didn't have the indwelling of the spirit yeah. during that time either. So, in, well, yeah, like you said, if it, it's linking to the Genesis 6, 1-4 of it. It's also going to connect Jude 6 and, you know, 2 Peter 2, 4. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the, these are the weird books in the Bible, but mm -hmm. this, this is... This is also what Peter is alluding to here. It's it's the same thing. So it's the phrase disobedient angels, you know, referring to this. And that's going to, as, as you and I say, we don't have all the cards and we're searching for where else do we get this? What's going on? You end up drawing to 1 Enoch 6 through 16 and wanting the yep. whole story. Yeah, so when we get the verb here uh, for he went or he had, had gone, which is... Uh, Prothesis, um, it depicts Jesus traveling, but it doesn't depict the direction that he traveled. So it could be a parallel to the ascension in verse 22, which I think it does. Which we always think of ascension as going up, but mm -hmm. that's not necessarily biblical. And you and I all often say that, is that sacred space isn't always up. Yeah, it's it, like you said, it, there could be a cosmic north, yeah. but it, <laughs> it could be going south. Yeah. So um, this is actually an allusion, like we said, to First Enoch, where it tells the story of the fallen angels yep. uh, uh, from Genesis 6, 1 to 4. And Enoch, in that, is sent on a mission to pronounce judgment on the fallen spiritual beings. So let me read a little bit from First Enoch here. It's First uh, Enoch 12, 4 through 13:2. Uh, it's actually a pretty short section. So we got First Enoch 12, uh, 4 through 13:2. Enoch, scribe of righteousness, go and speak to the watchman of heaven, and any who left behind the high heavens, the holy eternal place who defiled with the women just as the sons of earth did when they also did the same and took for themselves women you have brought great destruction on the earth and there will be no peace for you no remission of sins and though they rejoiced in their children they will see them the murder of the beloved ones and they will groan over the destruction of their children they will be bound forever and there will be no mercy and peace enoch say to azazel go there will be no peace for you, and great judgment will come against you to bind you. There will be neither pause nor question for you about the wrongs which you brought to to light and about all the works of ungodliness, undoing, and failure that you have declared to the people. So first I just need to pause and say we're, we're not taking this as Biblical. It's, it's a grain. It's a grain. It, it may or may not be, you know, Matt and I actually really like First Enoch. I, I think it, there's a lot of things that can be revealed to it, but we're just getting clues. That's yeah, what we're drawing. We're explaining of. So, the mindset that they had, and they're, they're, they're not saying that the, these books are 
part of the canon, they're just pulling on them because they're popular literature, like a pastor quoting yeah. Charles Spurgeon or something like that. So here's what I do with this. I, t I take First Peter when we're, when we're trying to interpret this. We're mm -hmm. grappling with yeah. what exactly does this mean, and we're going to something that was written closer to that time period and saying... What did they feel about it? Mm -hmm. How did they think about it? And to to totally get this, we you know, like I first alluded to, you really got to read six through sixteen, maybe even eighteen, because in First Enoch eighteen, you get these words of the prison house for the stars and the powers of heaven. So stars, you'll see some stars yeah. on Matt's shirts over here. There's an idea that the original stars were those correct, uh, directly created by the hands mm -hmm. of God, the the sons and the daughters of God, and the heavens. And then they're going to fall. Mm -hmm. And our ideas as recreated spiritual beings were eventually going to be those recreated stars. And so when you read morning star language mm -hmm. and things like that, that's what it's talking about is the uh, the original cosmos of the heavens. And so when we get to First Enoch 18, and it goes back to referencing what Matt read in when in First Enoch 12 you're going to get this idea that there is some kind of a prison house going on here. Mm -hmm. And then we ask the question, well, what is it? And is that the same prison house that's being talked about in First Peter? Yeah, so basically what's going on in Enoch is, I think Peter's making a parallel here, is Enoch goes and speaks to the, um, on God's behalf to these powers who basically says your judgment is sealed, and through Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is proclaiming the same thing, that their judgment is sealed. So, is, <laughs> is Enoch a foreshadow of Jesus at the cross going and doing the same thing to the spirits? And mm -hmm. that's why Matt and I kind of tend to take a more orthodox view on it, because... Mm -hmm. The cards seem to line up when you get into extra biblical material. At least that's the way that they thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, uh, we talked about Sheol is never called a prison, so no. we can't really talk about the grave in that way. It seems to be some other kind of prison. And Jesus preached to these fallen spiritual beings, and that preaching isn't euangelion. Yeah. It's not the the gospel. It's a proclamation of you're defeated. Yeah. Um, and so it's also interesting if you go to second Enoch this chapter is, this seven, is really interesting is yeah. that in Enoch's taken in there to the second heaven and shown a great darkness, greater than earthly darkness and prisoners being held there for the day of judgment. And so could, um, now some have said that this is like the precarnate Christ in the days of Noah speaking to that, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense with all of this data. So Peter's point here is about eight being is really about um, this could be his ascension that because this prison is actually in the heavens in Second yep. Enoch rather than in the ground and so on the way to the throne Jesus is saying hey after my resurrection on the way to the ascension to take the throne at the right hand of God you guys have been your fate is sealed because I am now taking the throne yeah so. Don't read too much into yeah. this. So you got to remember that this is even in the even in Second Enoch. This is so Second Enoch is a little bit more controversial. Yeah. I'll just put <laughs> yeah. that one out yeah. there. So we're okay with First Enoch in a lot of ways, but when you get to Second Enoch, I kind of go, uh, yeah. I don't know yeah. about this. But again, it gives you their mindset or their understanding. Mm -hmm. But even it's still written in a Hebraic mindset. And any time that you get into visions, dreams, anything like that. It could be metaphorical, so don't read too much into theology. So an orthodox version of the, uh, of hell and theology is going to get that when you get to these heavens that you experience both heaven and hell within the same picture, and that seems to be what's going on be here, here yeah. that you can see it off in the distance. Yeah, so Peter's point here, um, connecting to baptism, is that eight were saved through the water, which is a reassurance that God will protect his people in times of trials. Yeah. Um, and so just as Noah's family was a remnant on earth in those days, in the minority, they were still saved. Peter's audience is a remnant here on earth and a minority of believers in a pagan culture, and yet they will be saved based on their um, pledge of allegiance to God, and this brings us to baptism. And so then you got to go back. This whole time he's been talking about the sanctification journey, but he brings this line in the line in the dirt thing. He goes back and talks about you know who can be reclaimed after this earth is already done, and mm -hmm. there's some weird stuff going on there, but. I gotta say that this does shape my understanding of what's going to happen in the afterlife. I, I yeah. look at this and I, I try to put all the scriptures together in the complete lens, 
And then we get to baptism and it continues to solidify the feelings that I already had. Yeah, so here we have Jesus' victory uh, shown as a type of the basically similar to the flood connected to baptism. So it means that something like the waters in Noah's day was a prefigure of a greater judgment that's coming. And it's also connected to the salvation event of Christ. And this is all yeah. a symbol of baptism. So it says Noah was also a preacher of righteousness. Yep. Um, to a wicked world, and so it draws both on the Jesus typology and the Enoch typology, yep. and then connects it all to baptism. Yep. So how does that work? Yeah. So <laughs> baptism saves you now. <laughs> yeah. So Peter says this, and this is really the only phrase that we see of an explicit um, statement that baptism saves you in the Bible. Usually, it, like in Acts, and that is connected with repentance or something yeah. else, but. It's interesting also that Peter immediately qualifies it after he says that, though. So yeah. some people will, be, will take a, a baptism, the act of baptism, and we've gone into this in other videos. So you can go yeah. watch our baptism and communion video, which shows how just the act itself isn't saving. There's something behind that. Yeah. And So what's going on? What is Peter saying? Uh, the, the flavor seems to be that there's salvation now in this. He just put out one of the five times in scripture we get this very momentary word lying in the sand drawn he goes back and says all these people that were pre-old testament might have a chance for salvation now there's a lot going on in here and now he brings baptism into it so what i'm hoping for if i was reading this for the first time is please help me understand this and maybe by giving a picture of baptism he's doing just that yep so first he says it's not the removal of dirt so that's uh, a picture of ritual purity yeah. so baptism isn't just being ritually pure it's something more now this is important because why would he say it's not just the removal of ritual dirt and he goes back to israelite old testament sin in the camp type of thing mm -hmm. that communally the dirt had to be removed from their camp each and every year and every year that happened. So if you were a Hebrew listening to this, they would think that there's no longer a need for that because of Christ. So he's he's already prefacing that by saying, don't get me wrong here. Yeah, so the next he says it's an appeal. Um, and this word is often, can be translated to mean a question or a formal request. I think it's best rendered as a pledge. Yeah. Um, allegiance language again. And yeah. he started with allegiance language. So again, I keep saying this is circular. This I often say First Peter is the most crafted letter sermon in the entire New Testament because if you've ever learned how to preach a sermon, good sermons start with something and kind of hook you. And then at the end, it's like a puzzle that connects and it all makes mm -hmm. sense. And that's exactly what's going on here. Yeah, so he's saying that this act of baptism is a pledge of a good conscience to God. And yep. so that's what it means. It's a parallel um, to all of this in the, in the rhetoric. So baptism is a pledge of allegiance, of a good conscience to God. And this makes sense of where it says that um, the good conscience is in Greek an objective genitive. Yep. Yep. And so that means that the baptism itself is the pledge of a good conscience yeah and so it's so now it sounds like he's describing more of a journey or yeah. a sanctification <laughs> so i'm confused you start using you know words for right now right here but now we're getting journey language yeah so he uses the image of noah and so noah was allegiant to god and was saved through the waters because of his yeah. allegiance to god and actually many early church fathers interpret the ark in this passage as an emblem of the church yeah and so coming into the church yep. is what part of what saves you. There's through. been a few sci-fi movies uh -huh. made about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then it ends up with connecting the angels and authorities being subject to him. So baptism is a pledge that puts us on God's side in the church yep. um, and not on the side of judgment to the powers. Then we see that baptism is a, also a declaration to the powers that you are on in part of God's kingdom. Yep. And it's interesting that all of this lines up with Enoch's declaration to the angels, so it's all connecting here. And then the early church always had denunciation of Satan's kingdom connected to their baptismal liturgies. Now, if you're really following along here, you're trying to figure this all out. You know, where, where does it fall? There's momentary language, there's this and that. Now, if you go back to the very beginning, we also have words that insinuate some kind of foreknowledge, predestination, things like that. So mm -hmm. what's happening here is... 
it seems that Peter's painting a picture that some people may not have had it figured out. They had a, a wrong mindset of what was going on. And this is one of the passages that really, again, kind of shapes me as a hopeful universal reconciliationist because I look at this and I say, we're never to judge when that line of salvation is drawn. But if we were to go fast forward and look back, you could argue that there would be a more, there would be a time and space someplace where yeah. you could say that's where he crossed the line. But we don't know where that is and to, to counsel or to disciple people towards that line of thinking doesn't make more sense. The whole flavor of First Peter is actually saying don't think that way. Mm -hmm. Think in terms of sanctification. Live a life well all the way so that you're not thinking about regenerates in a prison or a lake of fire or something like yeah. that. Alright, so let's continue into chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6 here. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So, as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer from the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In, in all this, they were surprised that you did not run into that with them, the same excess and dissipation, and that they might malign you. But they will give an account to him who is already ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel um, has for this purpose been preached to those who are, who, even those who are dead, that they are judged in the flesh as men, and they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. All right, so what we have here in uh, 4, 1 to 6, it connects back to 3.18, which is talking about the suffering of Christ for sins. So the purpose of Christ here, um, when we, when we look at it, um, that word purpose, enoia, uh, in Greek has a sense of wisdom or insight, which would be a plea to arm yourselves with Christ's wisdom and his resolve that he had in his sufferings and his connection to the Father as his source of power. Yeah. So there's a weird thing going on here. Again, this goes back to Hebraic thinking. So this is something that Greeks didn't necessarily think this way, and he's urging you to think more Hebraically. And so I'll use uh, Proverbs 4.26 as an example. It says, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. So when you really get into this, the, the first part of it will be established. There's there's a idea here that, that this is being deliberate. And so he's going back to this same mindset of being deliberate, but when you get to this, all your ways will be established. The the idea, the, the the word here is only used a few times in scripture, and it's not the regular word for path that mm -hmm. you think of. It's the word for for a cow. And at first you go, <laughs> what 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 is that? You know why? How can it mean a cow? But the idea is a cow path. That's mm -hmm. the connection. And so the cow path in Hebraic thinking was that calves were going to be sacrificed for holiness and you need to walk that path carefully because if you step outside the path, guess what you're gonna step in? It gets dirty. Yeah. So so it's a very deliberate action and as you walk this path, what is the path? Toil, suffering, hardship, mm -hmm. all of that. So Hebraically, the Jews would have understood this kind of Psalm 4 mm -hmm. mindset of walking the path to righteousness. This is the Kadosh language that has been interwoven through there over and over. And so he's saying, if you're going to suffer, you need to be strategic and it points straight to Jesus. Mm -hmm. That it doesn't do any good to suffer unless you take on the mindset of Jesus and the suffering Christ. So all of this, he kind of goes back into this world, really weird mindset in the, in the previous thing of, you know, going back to preaching to the dead or the prison or something like that. Why go there? But then, and then he comes back and he says, but the purpose of all of this is that your path might be in Christ. Yeah, and that connects the whole thing of ceasing to sin. Um, yeah. So in your suffering, you're suffering because you're being like Jesus. And if you become more like Jesus, you cease to sin. So that's the whole connection there. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but it's becoming like Christ 
makes you cease to sin. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the whole concept. So from of there, the what do you have to do is if you walk this path, you're separating yourself from the world. And that's what we get in verse yeah. 2 and 3. Yeah, the vice lists that are there are all connected to things at pagan festivals, pagan yep. dinner parties, including temple worship and celebrations. There is the separation what from the world. What path are you on? <laughs> yeah. So why would pagans really be surprised that Christians wouldn't run with them? I yeah. mean, uh, sometimes today in our world, it's like if, so if someone invites you to go out, go out to do drugs, get drunk, yeah. whatever, and you just say no, usually they're not going to persecute you so much. Uh, they might mock you a little bit, but but here, everything was communal, so they thought that if you communal, if you weren't, didn't display the proper piety toward the yep. gods, that you were basically would bring famine and plague and all that onto your communities because you didn't participate yep. in the pagan culture. These are home wreckers. Yeah, yeah. The second thing is family members. If they broke that ancestral tradition, yep. would be considered a home wrecker. So that would bring persecution. Christians also didn't participate in the empire cult, and so they were considered unpatriotic. So, if you've read my book, this is the way the first chapter kind of comes out and says, "Are you celebrating?" Christmas in our culture or not because it's pagan you know there's nothing Christian about it are you going to try to celebrate it so that some might be introduced to Jesus or are you not going to celebrate it as a pursuit of holiness I'm going to actually say that both of those might work and Jesus might have done one one day and the other the other day and so this is the deliberate way of thinking of Think about these things. Walk the path, and you might be able to slightly step this way or that way to meet somebody in that communally, bring them in, do this, but don't step in the cow pie on your way. Yep. So the last don't part. Don't get drawn in. Yep. The last part here it talks about the gospel being preached to the dead. So we're kind Goes of back to, this again. back to this again. <laughs> what is Peter stuck on here? Yeah. yeah. So this is really tr a tricky part of a couple verses to interpret. Yeah. So. Um, does Peter mean that Jesus preached to the dead humans, basically the, his three days in the grave, yeah. maybe their their souls or whatever? Is that what this is saying? So, or is he saying that the message of Jesus was preached to those who are now dead? Yeah. So it's or or maybe it means both. So yeah. again, the interpretation mm -hmm. is he just talked about the prison cells, you yeah. know, and a, an allusion to this, you know, lake of fire kind of thinking, the mm -hmm. regenerate spirits, all yeah. of this kind of stuff. Is he going back to that? Or should we interpret it separately from that, just talking about the kind of lying in Christ of those mm -hmm. who are totally dead? You know, we, yeah. we want to talk about, you know, is it possible to lose your salvation? Well, that's kind of a, a weird conversation in yeah. this context. Where yeah. do you put that, you know? Yeah, so it's obvious here that the humans are dead. It doesn't say um, in the grammar of whether the message was received before they were dead right. or, or after they were dead. And it's ambiguous if it's Jesus doing the preaching or believers doing the preaching on Jesus's behalf. Yeah. Because um, Jesus in this is already sitting on the throne in the context. So um, so we just kind of don't know. It's a bit ambiguous. You don't, you don't have yeah. all the cards of what Peter's doing here. He's doing a few things. So we do know that judgment comes after resurrection in the Bible. And so he's alluding to that also. And it seems to speak of that when Christ returns and resurrects people that the judgment will take place. Place. So this is a really important time to stop and say, theologically, this is an area where Matt and I would caution mm -hmm. anybody to build doctrine. We yep. see this over and over that somebody gets off on a weird mm -hmm. passage that isn't even seem to be the intention of the whole book, mm -hmm. and they start building these solid doctrines on weird things. And so I would say it's okay to believe either one. You know, mm -hmm. you, you have a little bit of merit to go either way with this passage, but don't build too much into that. Yeah, I think his big point here, it's similar to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is that the main point is suffering in the flesh, but there is ultimate, you yeah. might suffer in the flesh, but there's ultimate hope because of resurrection. Um, and this is in contrast with uh, verse 6, is that what, there's a contrast here, is what men see and then make you suffer is not what God sees, because... He is ultimately, though they might kill your flesh, he will make you alive in the resurrection. And again, I love First Peter because I don't usually love Greek, but I love Hebrew. And this is, again, Hebrew contronym language. Mm -hmm. So if you take the language, you, you go back to Hebrew, and it's, it's going to be continually kind of going to 
being dead, but in being dead, you're being made alive at the same time. Yeah, but so it's the whole suffering servant, though. This people saw that Jesus was... Yep. Their point of view is that Jesus was a transgressor, so they killed him, but the Father raised him up, and through his resurrection, he brought healing to many. Yes. And that's the whole context of here, of the preaching of the gospel, and and suffering and all that connected together. So again, we could spend days and uh -huh. weeks and film after film after film after this, and there's some pretty good stuff on each one of those verses that you could get into, but let's keep going. This, this is, is the last section. This is the last section. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength of God who supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, so what we got here, he starts out with speaking about the end of all things. Yes. So Peter calls his audience to be sober and alert which um, and have sound judgment through prayer. This connects back to the thesis statement of gird up the loins of your mind. Once again, he keeps coming back to that. And I got to just, and again, do another timeout and say culturally this is going to play into a lot of what's going on. There is turmoil in the culture where years within, you know, this whole huge war between you know, Judaism and the Greco-Roman Empire and everything going on, they truly believe that they are in the end of all days right here. Yep, so um, he talks about prayer. And so Peter's emphasis is that prayer really forms you so that you can gird up the loins of your mind. Yeah, we, we get the idea of you should be spending hours and hours a day just in prayerful, diligent, strategic thinking for you and your family, communally, everybody around you, and kind of sitting down and making a plan for where you're going to go from here. Where's your church going to go from here? Where? How does this look? And we just don't think that kind of strategy into our life these days, especially through prayer. Mm -hmm. So the reason for all of this of doing this is because the end of all things is near but what does peter mean there yeah what does that mean <laughs> yeah, yeah so obviously the end hasn't happened yet we're two thousand years removed from, <laughs> from that and jesus still hasn't come back in the way that we have thought so so this is where i get to this and i go peter was off it wasn't the first time peter was off you know we we see this disciples the disciples were chronically off and we kind of get to this point you know, 20, 30 years later, Peter thinks that, you know, if, if you could interview him right now, he would say, all right, the we're going to probably going to be some major war. Jesus is going to come back wielding a sword on a horse and, you know, bringing a military of angels and everything else. But maybe he wouldn't say that because yeah. he kind of has the backward interlacing. It's almost like mm -hmm. he's learned in 30 years that that actually might not be the way that it happens. Yeah, when it says the end of all things here, literally it says in Greek, the end of all. And what's the all? So in 70 AD, when the temple's destroyed, it was the end of, we did a whole series on eschatology. It's the end of basically kind of that realm of, yeah. of Judaism. A and lot of people ask, when does, when does the old covenant end? And most people want to put, they just say Jesus, uh -huh. you know, and that's really generic just uh -huh. to say Jesus. So when does the actual old covenant end? Does it, does it end at the time he goes to the cross? cross? Does it end at ascension? Does it end when the spirit falls at Pentecost? Or could the end of the covenant be more linked to the ages of Hebraic thought, which mm -hmm. might be 70 AD. Yeah, so it's kind of that 2-H theology. Peter could be talking about the end of the Jewish world, yeah. uh, the end of sacrifice, um, which stopped the sacrifices haven't happened since the temple was destroyed. Jesus yeah. was the ultimate sacrifice, and 
So our options are that either Peter was mistaken or he wasn't referring to the end of the world. Yeah. And which points this to an early date of the letter again if he wasn't yeah. referring to the end of the world. Yeah. He was referring to the destruction of the temple maybe. So in all of my theology, just in case you're wondering, I go generational. Mm -hmm. I think there's too much in the Old Testament to talk about generational language, 40 years, 40 years, 40 yeah, years. This generation. He's already made reference to this generational language earlier in this when he's talking about the days of Noah. I don't know if you mm -hmm. guys made that connection, but that's where I say because I can see the whole picture looking back, it's easy for me to connect this to generational language, and that's going to get, I always want to make connections here. This has connected my view on hell. It's connected my view on on uh, theology of Israel and everything else. It's also connected my view on why I'd consider myself a preterist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so love and hospitality is the next thing that he brings up. So this is all connected to um, the reason for girding up the loins of your mind yeah. and doing all this is for love and hospitality of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And so Peter indicates that in these times of trials that love for other believers is the most important thing. Yeah. So this is stretching language. We uh -huh. talked about that already with the girding yep. of the loins. Of, you know, kind of you're, yep. you're putting your belt on, you're stretching out, getting ready mm -hmm. so you don't tear anything or anything yep. like that. It's, it's fervent strategic thought. But there's also an idea here that some people miss that as you plan strategically, bathe in prayer, that you need to be flexible. Mm -hmm. You need to have a dynamic shape. That's what... That's what Christ is asking you to take on. And again, this so fits into this because, you know, we get this end of the world language yet Peter's saying, but you got to be flexible with that. Mm -hmm. So he's all, all of a sudden kind of opening the door that things might not necessarily go the way that we think they're going to go because Jesus is the answer to everything. And Jesus's kingdom is a little backwards to what we would normally expect. Yeah, so Peter's telling his audience that love needs to be worked on like an athlete, of how an athlete trains. Then you also need to be flexible because love covers over a multitude of sins. Yeah. So the that covering- goes back to unity language. Yeah, yeah, and the covering language is also atonement yep. language. And so when you have that, the covering doesn't mean to sweep those things under the rug, but it means that love dissolves those things. It's yeah. that, that's the, Back to the language of blood. Yeah. And he's also going to tie to do these things without complaining. So mm -hmm. he's he's going to go back to that those household cold languages and even though you you know you could esteem somebody, you know, to honor and regard them, we're all equal in the eyes of Christ, but you should honor mm -hmm. everybody as if they're greater than you, so to speak. Yeah, so this whole section here of verses 9 through 11 can be viewed as instructions, like you said, of household worship. Uh, love and hospitality needs to be in order to be good stewards of God's grace, yeah. and that's how he concludes with being stewards of God's grace. So stewards here is literally, the Greek word means to take care of the house. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about that. and Now this is interesting too because I talk a lot about headship language and mm -hmm. I, I just wrote a little article about that. But again, like we want to think as the head of the grand ruler, the king of everything, when over and over in the Old Testament when we get to headship language, it's to take on the idea of servanthood. And when you're talking about the, the person who keeps the house, what is servant. that? The servant. It's the servant. Yeah. yeah. So verse 11 here, the last verse that we we're talking about is kind of a benediction, but he's kind of talking about um, major gifts in the church of one of speaking and the other of doing or serving. And Peter seems to connect prophecy with anybody who speaks in church, but it connects it to doing also. Yeah. So yeah. So the literal meaning is that speech must bear the character, the logoion of God's word, Jesus. Yeah. So this goes back to the old um, kind of image bearing language. So mm -hmm. I've used this analogy before that, you know, when you got to the edge of a kingdom, there would be a sign or a pillar mm -hmm. that would represent the person who owned that. You're stepping uh -huh. into this territory. We have this today. You're entering Wisconsin right mm -hmm. now, you know, but it would be an image. No, those are different than idols, but sometimes there would be right next to the first one of saying, I own this area, yeah. there would be an image of a god, and the image mm -hmm. of a god would also be saying, I own this I area. Own this area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when we're talking about speaking here, it's the point is the one who speaks and the one who does should do so in the manner of basically that it is God's own utterances yeah. and do it through the strength that God supplies. And the whole purpose is to glorify God through Jesus. Nefesh language through Jesus. Yep. Yep. But every single part of me. So this, this whole section is kind of a continuation of 
taking on the way of life of the suffering servant and it's pushed to say, and this is what Christ looks like in you. Yeah, the attitude and example of Jesus. And Peter then explains that in doing that, it's what your baptismal identity is. So yeah. when you're baptized, you're putting on Christ is what we see. And you're putting on the way of the suffering servant, but the suffering servant was vindicated through his suffering. Yeah. And so humble allegiance language all through here. I mean, there's just, again, like I said, there's so many intricately woven connections through all of scripture and, you know, in a Hebraic way of thinking, but also in a way that everybody can understand. Yeah, and when we look at specifically baptism, if we look at it, the dying and taking on the dying and rising of Christ is that his resurrection in the passage is connected to a declaration against the powers. Yeah. And so when we live our lives in a way that reflects Jesus with allegiance to him, we're making a declaration through the way that we live that we're on Jesus' side and it's a declaration of the power's defeat. Yeah. And so he's that's the whole connection of the suffering servant with baptism. So there's one more piece here that might leave you questioning where are the powers and principalities? Mm -hmm. Because we get the idea that at the cross they're bound. Now, are they bound generationally? Does that There's an implication that maybe he's talking about at the end of the generation, they're bound. Or is the implication that they're going to be bound closer to the day of judgment when all things come together? There's a lot of questions that are kind of thrown out here that we don't have the answers to. And to be honest, I don't know that Peter had those answers. Yeah. No, he's just basically, he's telling the people that because of this is going to be a reality or it is a reality yeah. in Christ and you've taken on that baptism identity, now you need to live it out in the church. Yeah. Your way of life should reflect the way of Jesus and the way that you speak and the way of actions. And you need to speak and act as if your words are the Lord's words and your actions are the Lord's actions. Get on your path and make sure it's a clear sign to those mm -hmm. that are around the path that you know whose you are and who you're living for. May God bless you and keep you.